in this series, uh, we're in week three of four. Uh, next week is our final week in this series. Little side note, next week is going to be an awesome week to invite people that you've been praying for that don't know Jesus. It's going to be a great opportunity to do that. But we're in this, uh, this series called Restoring Honor. Restoring Honor. And um, if you haven't been with us, what we've been doing is we've been attacking this idea that many, maybe not all, but many of the problems in our culture and in our community, even possibly in our lives, are a result of dishonor. Dishonor to God, uh, but also dishonor to uh, our fellow man. And so we've been attacking this uh, idea by asking the question, how can we restore honor? How can we restore honor? And so we talked about uh, not allowing ourselves to, to view ourselves as victims, but instead rather looking for how God wants to bring victory out of the, the trials that we face. Um, Pastor Dave talked last week about the need for faithfulness. Faithfulness in a, uh, a society and culture that, that struggles to commit and to be faithful. And, and how that fleshes out is just choosing to serve Jesus each day. And that really becomes the backbone of restoring honor. And so today then we're, we're going to talk about, okay, if we've decided to be faithful... What's the next step? Where, where do we go from there? And today we're going to see how generosity restores honor in the public square. And uh, repeat this after me. Uh, honor. Okay, that's good. I was just making sure you're awake there. It's good. All right. Honor is generous so that there is justice. Let's do that one more time. Honor is generous so that there is justice. All right, that's the big idea that we're chasing after today, okay? And uh, we're going to get there, but we've got to go on this journey because before we can appreciate the need for generosity, we have to understand the, uh, the betrayal that God felt, felt from the Israelites. So if you've pulled up Malachi with me, we're actually going to read verse 17 of chapter 2, the very last verse to get us set up. It, it, it introduces chapter 3. It says, You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? You have wearied him by saying that all who do evil are good in the Lord's sight, and he is pleased with them. You have wearied him by asking, where is the God of justice? Now we need to remember, right, that, that what's happening in the culture at this time is that the Israelite people are bringing sacrifices and offerings that are deformed. They're bringing animals that are blind, that are lame, uh, animals that are stolen away from other people. And at the same time, while they're bringing these deformed offerings, people are being, these people are being told that, that they're doing the right thing, that they're checking the box on what it means to follow God, that, that by making a sacrifice of any kind, no matter how good it is, they're, they're checking the box on religion. They're doing what is technically required of them. And they're being held up as good people in the community because of it. And what this verse here says to us is that God is tired of that. He says, you weary me. This is wearing me out. I'm tired of your words. I'm, I'm tired of hearing you call people that betray me good. And then just to make sure that, that the people understand the severity of their hypocrisy, God reminds them that while they're making evil look good, they're at the same time throwing up their hands to God and saying, where's the God of justice? It happened this week, but it probably happens every week, if I'm really honest. Families hanging out in the living room, stuff everywhere, right? 
every toy imaginable has made its way from the toy room to the living room. And you're just like, why? Caitlin lamented this week. She was like, I cleaned the house twice today. And you can't tell. And somehow our kids or our grandkids, or sometimes our kids when they come back home and they're like 25, whoever it is, they'll make this mess. And then while standing in the middle of the mess, they find something to complain about, right? And they're like, I don't have this toy. And you're like, look at the 33 toys around you. And they're like, well, I want this kind of snack. And you're like, pick up the toys in like meltdown mode, right? Like uh, they, in the middle of the mess, they still have something to complain about. And as we put ourselves in that position of being frustrated with those people, can we stop and realize for just a second that that's the exact picture that's being painted here in Malachi? That the people, the Israelites, were in the middle of this mess. Everything in their world was, was just in a disarray. And in the middle of that, they're throwing up their hands to God and saying, where's the God of justice? How come you're not making this right, God? Unless we think that maybe we're free of that, that we haven't contributed to the mess, let's think about the state of our country for just a moment. Because you see, I think we're standing in the middle of our country and we, we see all these messes around us, messes that humanity made, right? Messes that, that human people have brought about. And we stand in the middle of them and we, we cry out, where is the God of justice? Messes like extreme poverty. Messes like rampant addiction. This weekend in Louisville, there were more than 50 overdoses in a 36-hour period. Messes like racial tolerance at best instead of racial reconciliation. Messes like law enforcement and black men both being unfairly stereotyped. And we stand in the middle of these messes, right? Not willing to think that, that humanity... That humans, that maybe I had an attitude, had an action, that maybe not directly but indirectly contributed to these messes, and we stand in the middle of them and we say, where's the God of justice? How come he's not making this right? We stand in the middle of messes like the highest number of murders in Louisville in five decades. We stand in the middle of messes like children that don't have food for the weekend. And have no father presence or any sense of family. We stand in the middle of messes where there are elderly people that aren't able to care for themselves and they find themselves standing in weather, in line to, to receive food distribution. And that's just what we see in our country. It's just what we see in our little corner of the world. Because outside of that, we see children falling victim to military attacks. We see women and children being sold as sex slaves. And, and I'm sure worse things that I can't even begin to think or imagine. But before we stand in the middle of those messes and cry out, where's the God of justice? We have to take a minute and think, have I dishonored God and have I dishonored my brothers and sisters in such a way that maybe not directly but indirectly led to these messes? Because see, when we see all these injustices, we, we think it's not right. We, we can see that it's not right, but then we look up in the middle of the mess and we're asking that same question that the Israelites were asking. 
And perhaps, perhaps, we in our finite or, or small or limited view of the injustice, we can see and know little about the truth of that situation, that we don't really understand what we think we understand. And perhaps God, who is infinite, who spans space and time and place, and who created human beings for good works that that they might be fruitful and multiply, perhaps that God sees truth that spans time and place. And if that's so, then perhaps when we search with frustration for the God of justice, God says the same thing that he said to the Israelites, guys, you're wearing me out. I'm tired of your words. And perhaps then it's possible that just as it was for the Israelites, that for us, the problem is not the lack of a God of justice. The problem is a lack of justice expressed through God's people. Because in fact, God did more than just create people in his, his, in his image with the ability to choose faithfulness to God. He did more than that. He also paved the way for us through his son, Jesus Christ. And here we are in the book of Malachi, And God, in the middle of his frustration with the Israelites, is about to show them the the path that he has paved through his son, Jesus Christ. Right here in Malachi 3, verse 1. Follow along with me. God says to the prophet Malachi, Look, I am sending my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And then the Lord that you are seeking will, will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you looked for so eagerly is surely coming, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Well, there's hope. There's great hope. As we stand in the middle of these injustices, this messiness, and we say, where is, is justice? Where is the, the things that are right? God says, I'm going to send Jesus. I'm going to send the one who, who can make things right. Verse 2, but who will be able to endure it when he comes? Who will be able to stand and face him when he appears? For he will be like a blazing fire that refines metal, or like a strong soap that bleaches clothes. He will sit like a refiner of silver, burning away the dross. He will purify the Levites, refining them like gold and silver, so that they may once again offer acceptable sacrifices to the Lord. And then once more, the Lord will accept the offerings brought to him by the people of Judah and Jerusalem, as he did in the past. He says, Justice is coming. Justice is coming, but justice has to come in you first. At that time, I will put you on trial, God says. I'm eager to witness against all sorcerers and adulterers and liars. I will speak against those who cheat employees of their wages, who oppress widows and orphans, or who deprive the foreigners living among you of justice. For these people do not fear me, says the Lord of heaven's armies. That'll preach. preaches this message to us about Jesus. That Jesus is our hope, but he's our hope because he refines us. He refines us by truth and through trial. Jesus refines us by truth and through trial. What do I mean by that? That Jesus is coming is the promise that God makes, right? Finally, someone is coming to make things right. But what we don't often understand is that when Jesus comes to make things right, he does that by making us right. Do you you grasp that? That the way God makes things right in the world is by making his people right, by refining us. And that process, we read, is hard. It's like the, the process of precious metals being refined by fire and chemicals. 
Malachi even writes that, that Jesus will burn away the dross, uh, simply meaning that the worthless things about your life will be burnt away. And you're like, who, me? There's worthless things in my life? Everything in my life is important. Yep, even you. There are worthless things. And furthermore, God begins to, to be pleased with the sacrifices that you make as you come through that refining process, not before. Do you see that? You, you know why that happens after the refining of truth? It's because God wants your heart more than he wants your hard work. God wants you, not your usefulness. Jesus refines us by truth. You see, he calls us out of the messiness and changes us. This idea of God being a refiner and, and of doing that through Jesus is uh, illustrated in, in um, one of the stories of the Old Testament that I really love. It's a story about a man named Gideon. Find this story in Judges chapter 7. Gideon is a, a faithful leader of God, and he's leading an army of 32,000 people, and he's uh, preparing to go to war against the Midianites. 32,000 people. Uh, in, in culture today, what we might do is we might look at that and we, we might say, that is great leadership, Gideon. You have got 32,000 people that are ready to go to war with you. Good job. But God comes to him as he's preparing for this battle with the Midianites, and he says, nah, here's what's going to happen. You've done such a good job of doing this that um, when you win the battle, all the people are going to think that they won the battle instead of God winning the battle. We've got to refine this. There's no faith required here. Now, if, if, I'm, if I'm getting it, I'm like, God, you've got to be kidding me. I've worked really hard to get this, this army ready, and now you're telling me that we've got to go face the Midianites, and, and you want to refine down the army. Like, I don't understand, God. God says, just trust me. Have faith. He says, go to your army and, and tell them that everybody who doesn't want to go to war doesn't have to, and they can go home. So he does that, and 22,000 guys take him up on his offer. <laughs> Gideon's like, God, you've got to be kidding me. You just took two-thirds of my army. I thought I, was a guy, I thought I was leading well. And if that's not enough, God's like, eh, still not sure. We haven't, we haven't totally been refined by the truth that God is the one who wins the battle. He says, so take them down to this river. Whoever dips their face in the water, tell them to get out of here. They're not really ready. And those that pull it up with their hands and are kind of cautious, they're ready. 10,000 people left. They go down to the river. 300 do it the right way. I mean, this is unprecedented. Like, I've heard about refining. I've heard about going through hard seasons. God, I, I, when will you stop taking things away from me, God? Right? I've heard people pray that. Like, this is so hard. When are we going to get out of this hard season? Put yourself in Gideon's shoes for just one moment. 32,000 people down to 300. He says, all right, now you're ready. Let's go to war against the Midianites. <laughs> Come on, God. But as God would have it, you see, God responded to the faith of Gideon. And those 300, they go and they, they do exactly what God says. And the Midianites in this crazy, only God could get the glory moment, end up killing themselves and they plunder them. And that's a picture of what happens in our lives when we truly invite Jesus in and give him our heart and our soul and our mind. And we say, God, not my way, but your way. So he begins to, to cut things away, to refine us by his truth. To help us to see that the things that we think we want, we don't really need. 
And as he refines us by that truth, it, it teaches us to have faith. It requires our faith to go, to grow. See, Jesus refines us by truth and through trial. And hearing the truth demands that we have faith. When we hear the truth about Jesus, it demands that we, that we have faith in something bigger than ourselves, whether we want to recognize that or not. But it's going through the trials that give us a chance to exercise that faith. Remember, in God, God says in Malachi, he's like, I'm sending Jesus to you. He's going to refine you. And then I'm going to put you on trial. I'm going to put you on trial. And he goes on to list all of these injustices that, that he is eager, he says, eager to call out amongst the people. I mean, at this time, you're thinking, God, you just rocked my world. You've been refining me, stripping things away from me. But it's at that moment that God puts you on trial. Remember Job from a couple weeks ago? He was put to the test because of his great faith. God says that at the time, I, I will put you to the test. I will, I will put you through a trial. And he says, I'm eager to bring justice. You want justice? Allow him to be refining your life. This is illustrated in another story that I love and, and one that you may or may not be familiar with. It's okay if you're not. 2 Samuel chapter 12, there's a story about a king, King David. David had uh, taken a long, hard look at this beautiful woman named Bathsheba, got himself in a little bit of trouble, and then did what most of us would do. He started doing other things that weren't right to try and cover up the trouble that he was in. Ends up killing Bathsheba's husband. He thinks he's got it all taken care of. He thinks the whole mess is cleaned up. And this guy named Nathan, who's a prophet, comes to him and he says, Hey, I had an injustice that I wanted to ask you about. He said, Okay. He said, There was this rich man, had all kinds of sheep and cattle, like big farm, which is how you were rich back then. Probably how you're rich today. <laughs> That's right, I'm coming for you, farmers. No, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. Had to lighten the room a little bit. It's getting a little heavy. <laughs> There's this rich man who had all kinds of animals, and, and then there was this, this poor man who had one sheep. And this guest comes to town to visit his rich friend, and the rich friend says, we got to throw a party. I need a lamb for the feast. And he goes to the poor man and takes his one sheep. He says, we got to butcher your sheep for the party. Sorry, dude. King David. You're wise, and this doesn't seem just. What do you say? Well, David starts to rail. This is not fair. It's not just. This isn't right. You know what Nathan says? You are that man. You are that man. Because in what you did to Bathsheba and to her husband, you were the one who had everything available to you. And you took the one thing that they had, and that was each other. David wanted justice only to realize that he was actually the one who was unjust. And I wonder if that is true for any of us. That when we want justice, when we begin, when we begin to be refined by the truth of Jesus Christ, we might realize that we are actually the ones who are unjust. Because you see, what we believe about ourselves will always inform the way that we honor others. Let me say that again. What we believe about ourselves will always inform the way that we honor others. Uh, let me give you an example. If we believe that we are generally good people, 
then we will regularly see the bad in others in order to protect our own self-image of goodness. It's a natural response for us. But if we see ourselves instead as people refined by God's truth, if we see ourselves as people who are saved by his grace and not through our works, then we become free to honor those in the public square who have been dishonored. You see, we are free to honor and care for the orphan because we know that we were once a spiritual orphan. You see the shift? We are free to honor and embrace the widow because we understand the sting of losing a piece of ourselves as we have been refined. We are free to honor and welcome the refugee because we understand that our Savior, Jesus Christ, was once one himself. And we are free to honor and walk with the addict because we understand that we too have been addicted to sin. If we want justice, we might need to realize how we are unjust because Jesus is going to refine us by truth and through trials. So the question becomes, what do we do in response, right? What do we do? Believe and repent. Malachi 3, 6, 7. God says, I am the Lord and I do not change. I am the Lord and I do not change. That is why you descendants of Jacob are not already destroyed. Ever since the days of your ancestors, you have scorned my decrees and failed to obey them. Now return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Here's the first thing. You have to believe in the God who never changes. It starts here. And if you don't believe in God, the rest of this will become a void process. It will feel very empty. The process of being changed by Jesus predicates a faith in him that is seeking understanding about yourself. What I mean by that is that you have to believe in him before he begins to transform your life. And so the question becomes, do you believe that God was always God? Do you believe that God is always God and and that he will always be God? That he will always be the one who who sees and, and loves and stays true to his promises? Jesus says it so directly to his disciples in John 14, 11. He says, just believe. <laughs> just believe. He said, I'm the truth. I don't change. Just believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe because of the work that you have seen me do. After we believe, we must repent. Because when you believe the truth about God, you realize the truth about yourself, that you are far from him. And that's where repentance comes in. Repentance is turning from sin and turning to Jesus. But but what does that practically look like? You see, there's something important that we have to say here. God is not after a relationship with you that is built on, on karma or the principles of karma. God does not want a relationship where you do good things and then he blesses you, or you do bad things and then he curses you. God is pursuing your heart. And he knows better than we know ourselves the very things that we must be running from so that we can run to him. God is in pursuit of your heart. And so as we read Malachi 3 here in the next couple of verses, we're going to see that repenting in this context and the application for today is to to stop being greedy and to start being generous. Turning from greed to generosity. Verse 8 says, Should people cheat God? Yet you have cheated me. But you ask, what do you mean? When did we ever cheat you? You have cheated me of the tithes and offerings that are due to me. Stop being greedy. The very things that I have given to you, you're holding back from me. 
What does that mean for us in our modern day context? What are the things that we are greedy with? It might still be money, but it also might be time, resources, influence. Influence is a big one. We're all about advancing ourselves instead of caring for others. Is that just? We must stop being greedy and we must start being generous. Verse 9 goes on. He says, you are under a curse for your whole nation has been cheating me. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse. So, cause and effect, right? So there will be enough food in my temple. Remember what we said at the beginning? Honor is generous so that there is justice. God displays that here, right? It's like, if you will, if you will bring this in, there will be enough. If you do, says the Lord of heaven's armies, I will open the windows of heaven for you. I will pour out a blessing so great that you won't have enough room to take it in. Try it. Put me to the test. Your crops will be abundant, for I will guard them from insects and disease. Your grapes will not fall from the vine before they are ripe, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Then all nations will call you blessed, for your land will be such a delight, says the Lord of heaven's armies. When God awakens us to our sin, uh, when, when we realize how we are being unjust, we should be over generous in our response, uh, giving more of our time, our money, our resources, our influence, more of ourself to join him where? On the outside. On the outside of our comfort zones, on the outside of, of where we think we're supposed to be to get ahead in this world. Because if we are to restore honor, the question can never be, what do I get? But must always be, what can I give? So to help you think specifically and to ask God, God, what is it in my heart that I need to repent of? What is it that I'm being greedy with that I should in turn be generous with? Ask yourself this question. What thing in this world controls me more than I control it? Maybe you ask God that in that moment. That would be a foreign concept. But, but ask God, God, what is it in this world that controls me more than I control it? There's many answers, right? There's limitless answers to that. But we want to take just a moment to address what Malachi cites for the Israelites and to let that inform how we think about those other options. Malachi is talking about their offerings, uh, their, their currency. He addresses the tithes and the offerings here. Notice that there's tithes and offerings. The tithe is 10% of their production. And then the offerings are on top of that. And, and hear me say this, right? I don't at all view this as this legalistic amount that we are expected to give uh, financially. Jesus tells a story about a widow's might that would affirm that to be true, right? Uh, the reason that giving money to God is important is because it's often the hardest thing to trust God with. We see it as our way to, to get ahead, to protect, to take care of ourself. It's the easiest thing for us to shield our faith with. And so giving then becomes an act of faith and of trust. It is a way that you actively run from your own power and into the presence of God. And so I, I encourage you to ask God, God, do I belong to you or, or do I belong to my money? And maybe it's not money for you, but whatever that thing is that, that God is stirring in your heart, God, do I belong to you or do I belong to my schedule? Do I belong to my job? Do I belong to my power? What is that thing for you? Today, um, maybe you need help figuring out how to manage your money, all right? This is something that, that is near and dear to my heart. I, I, I've, I'm not always good at this. I've been in this season. And if that's you, um, there are some folks. Dr. Mooneyhan is one. Doc, uh, Dr. Com, Dr. Komlos, you got an upgrade today. 
Jeff, who uh, baptized his son this morning, uh, and others, um, we would love to, to connect you with people that, that have had to go through this refining themselves. And so if that's something for you, mark that on your communication card before you turn it into the box today. I'm interested in, in what this looks like to be a better financial steward. We want to connect you guys with, with help on that journey. Honor is generous so that there is justice. Honor is generous so that there is justice. God begins to refine us and test us as we continue to be generous with God because of our faith in him. He uses us to bring justice in our world. We become the agents through which God is just. All right. I wrestled all week with how to end this sermon. Because I began to think about the things that, that I felt like were right in my life. Things that, that I could look at and, and feel blessed by, or, or that I was honoring God with them. And I quickly began to see that, that in many of those things, I could directly point to one person who had been generous with me. When it came to reading scripture, I can remember one guy that, that gave me a devotional that like poured himself out in that devotional to me and it shaped the way that I thought about uh, seeking out the Lord. I think about money. I think about my dad who, who, who still rails me about how I handle my money, right? And I love it even though I hate it. But when I think about the things that are right in my life, the things that are just, I realize that they are a direct result of somebody being generous to me. Maybe you begin to think of some of those people. And I struggled with, how do I, how do I tell that story? What does that look like? And it was so cool. I, I don't even know if I have permission to share this, but I'm just going to share it anyway and ask forgiveness later, right? Carver gets baptized this morning. An incredible moment in this young man's life. And Jeff comes up to me right before I start preaching. He's like, I just got to tell you this story. I'm like, okay. He's like, Dennis. Dennis, my Lori's stepdad. He comes up this morning and he hands Carver this, this book. And in this book are all these moments from his journeys across the country where he, he heard from Jesus, right? Where he knew that Jesus was, was teaching and, and, and training him. And he'd written those down and he gave that to Carver this morning. A generous gift, right? A gift that represents time, a, a gift that, that represents a giving of his heart to Carver as he begins this new journey in life. And a gift that no doubt will result in justice and things becoming right in Carver's life as he grows in his faith in the Lord. When we think about all the things that are wrong in our world, we must realize that it is our generosity towards others that will bring justice in those situations. As we finish this morning, we have to be careful to realize that the ultimate act of generosity is the thing that fuels all of this, that started this outsider movement. And so the band's going to come back up, and when the band comes to play, we're going to take communion and remember that sacrifice of generosity that Jesus made on the cross. We're going to have an opportunity to, to give financially in the back, in the cans, as we always do. But my guess, not even my guess, I know that there are people in this room who have not been refined by the truth of Jesus Christ, that have not given their lives to him.
in response to the fact that he was so generous in giving his entire life, being nailed to a cross for you. And so I'm going to read one passage of Scripture, and then I'm just going to go, and I'm going to be in the back, and there will be other people back there with me who can help you figure out what it looks like to accept that gift that Jesus wants to give you, to accept his generosity and be changed by it. John chapter 3. Verses 16 through 21, Jesus speaking. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. Catch this. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him. Get that? No judgment against anyone who believes in him. Do you believe that he came to save you, that he is never changing? But anyone who does not believe in him has, has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son. And the judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world, but people love the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. Do you love the darkness or do you love the light? Light can be harsh. It shines through. It refines. It pierces us. All who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it for fear that their sins will be exposed. But those who do what is right come to the light so others can see that they are doing what God wants. Would you accept the generous gift of Jesus' life for yours today? Would you walk in the light? Stephen, lead us in our time of response.